We're taking a look on this second Sunday of Advent at the prophet Zechariah. Last week, Kim did a wonderful job in showing the different names in the book of Zechariah about the coming king. It's in the year 520 B.C., and the people are utterly devastated. They have left the glory of what was Babylon. They have been told all their life, wait till you go home and see the beauty of this temple that God has built. And just like buying your dream house online and showing up and it's a swamp, they come back and God says to, through the prophet Zechariah that he is going to do a great thing. This morning we take a look at the other name that's given though to the great leader who will lead them. Not just Joshua the prophet who was alive then or Zerubbabel, the political leader, but of the coming king. If you have your Bible, do you take it out and stand with me for the reading of God's Word and turn to Zechariah 10. It's on page 774 in your pew Bible. Zechariah 10, verses 1 through 5. As he takes a look at this, and there are these false prophets and these household gods that are telling the people... Oh, it'll never come about. And God says, no, I have a different idea. If you're visiting, we read this together out loud as a sign of God's community. When we get done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And if you believe it, you say, thanks be to God. So let's read together verses 1 through 5. And as you read, listen carefully, you're reading God's word. Ask rain from the Lord in the season of the spring rain. From the Lord who makes the storm clouds, who gives showers of rain to you the vegetation in the field to everyone. For the teraphim utter nonsense, and the diviners see lies. The dreamers tell false dreams and give empty consolation. Therefore the people wander like sheep. They suffer for lack of a shepherd. My anger is hot against the shepherds, and I will punish the leaders. For the Lord of hosts cares for his flock, the house of Judah, and will make them like his proud warriors. Out of them shall come the cornerstone, out of them the tent pain, out of them the battle bow, out of them every commander. Together they will be like warriors in battle, trampling the foe in the mud of the streets. They shall fight, for the Lord is with them, and they shall put to shame the riders on horses. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the bloom fades, but these words last forever. Christmas time is a time of an incredible range of emotions. For some people, this is a really tough time. They're maybe removed from family or the first time that a family member is not there. It's a time also of a lot of fun and joy. Even the biggest Scrooge out there gets caught up in it. And the tough thing, though, for uh, us, particularly if you're in Los Angeles, is keeping your family together. We're spread out all across this nation, like uh, Carol and me, our kids are in Denver and Philadelphia. And I'm always reminded of, uh, I think it was a couple Christmases ago, the father who called up his grown daughter living in another city and said, Honey, um, how are you doing? She said, Fine, Dad. And he said, uh, I know it's a little close to Christmas and I don't want to give any bad news, but... Uh, I'm divorcing your mother. The relationship looks good to you on the outside, but it's just been tough, and I'm going to leave her. And she said, Dad, don't do anything. I'm going to get on a plane and come out there next week. I'm going to call my brother, your son, and we're going to come. Don't you do a thing, Dad. And she hung up. Well, his wife was in the other room and said, Honey, who is that on the phone? And he said, Good news, dear. It's our kids. They're coming out for Christmas, and I don't have to pay for the airfare. <laughs> It only works one year, though. I've tried that before. Uh, 
Zechariah had a task. Zakar is the Hebrew word remember. Zechariah means God remembers. In the Tanakh in the Old Testament, remember, remember, remember. Why does God keep saying that? Well, very often in life, what we need is not so much instruction. We need reminding. Now, there are times we don't know what the rip to do. And God, through His Word and through counsel in our minds and from looking at life, God will guide and lead. But very often, we know what we need to do. We just don't want to do it. And God says, remember, you're not doing this alone. Zechariah, they were raised, keeping most of these children. This is in the year 520. It fell in 586. Were born in Babylon. Babylon, the glory and the splendor. The hanging gardens of Nebuchadnezzar, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. But they were always told by their parents who were fugitives in exile, wait till you go back and see the temple that God dwells in. Wait till you see that. They travel thousands of miles and they find this zit-in-the-wall province called Palestine where these torn down, weed-grown, rat-infested, dirt-covered ruins and God says, what do you think? It's kind of like being raised in Manhattan and moving back to Barstow. (laughs) And God says, what do you think? And they say, this is horrible. And said, God says, I'm going to build the temple to glory you have never seen. And they said, really? He said, really? And they said, good luck with that. And God said, no, you're going to do it. And I'm going to do it through you. And the temple is just a sign of, of course, the building of a coming of Christ. The temple of God himself who dwells in our midst. And God calls not only, as Kim said, Nazare, the word for branch last week, but the cornerstone. And it's interesting, two different words. Not only in the 10th chapter we just read, the cornerstone can be either the capstone in an arch that holds it all together, or it can be the cornerstone that the foundation is built on, either way. But the whole structure, by its placement, is held together. And today, my brothers and sisters, my friends, as we get ready to come to this communion table, it really doesn't matter so much what you think about Christ as much as where as you have Him in your life. And the prophet Zechariah says, Remember, That I love, first of all, to share creation with you. Zechariah will say, not by might or by power, but by my my spirit, says the Lord God. Second of all, this table, Zechariah says, do not despise the day of little things. God doesn't come in in some huge, swooping salvation force. Now, when Christ comes back again, that's the way he's coming. But God has chosen to come in the little things. And the birth of this child and the smell of manure and urine in a feeding trough is how God enters this world. And sometimes in our life, God comes in the little tiny things. He loves small beginnings. Because above all, God will love giving, as you just read, the cornerstone, the thing that holds it all together. And if the building of the temple hints of God's glory and the unexplainable birth of Jesus, our Lord, in this manger... It's just a warm-up compared to when he goes to this cross and pays for everything you and I did and blows out of that tomb, ascends the glory, and he's coming back and with a new world and a new earth. It's all in this little book. You got your Bible. Let's turn and take a look at this. Turn with me over to Zechariah, the first chapter, on page 769 in your pew Bible. God delights in sharing his creation. 
You were made in the very Imago Dei, the Latin, the image of God, and you're little creators. Zechariah has these weird dreams. He's got eight different, if you will, dreams or visions. This is apocalyptic writing. Apocalyptic. Apocalypto means to pull back, to reveal something. If I took this right here and I pulled it off of the communion table, I would reveal it. I've said before to you, if you're sleeping last night and your husband or wife rolled over and took all the covers, they apocalypted you. And that's what it means. And it's got this huge imagery. It's very visual. Because it reveals it to the people that are wanting to know. And it conceals it from people who treat God like a game. You have heard before God speaks to everybody? No, He doesn't. God speaks to the interested. To those who are wanting to know what He wants. So this first imagery, which last week the four horsemen, that the four horsemen which a later revelation will use for the of the apocalypse writing, but then here, the second in chapter one verse eighteen, I looked up and saw four horns, and I asked the angel who talked with me, "What are these?" And he answered, "These are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem." Then I showed the Lord showed me four blacksmiths, and I said, "What are they coming to do?" He answered, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one could be raised. But these have come to terrify them, to strike down the horns of the nations that lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter its people. What he's saying is these horns are a sign of power. Like a bull with its horns or a ram with its horns was a sign of a strong animal. You and I, when you read the Bible, you have this view that Israel was a great nation. It wasn't. It was a tiny little nation compared to Egypt and Babylon and Assyria and now the Persians under Darius I. They were tiny. And God said, I am knocking their horns off of the people that have troubled you. Like in the Wild West film, when they shoot the gun out of the bad guy's hand. Or when if you're playing football, they knock their helmet off so they can't play anymore. Or you declaw and detooth the alley cat so all it can do is gum you when it's mad at you. He's saying these nations will be around, but Israel, they will not bother you anymore. So that's the first vision. Look in the second chapter in verse 1. In fact, let's read this together, verses 1 through 5, this measuring line. I looked up and saw a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then I asked, where are you going? He answered me, to measure Jerusalem, to see what its width and what is its length. Then the angel who talked with me came forward. And another angel came forward to meet him and said to him, Run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited like villages without walls because of the multitude of people and animals in it. For I will be a wall of fire all around it, says the Lord, and I will be the glory within it. The second image is of this young man, and he's doing measuring in two ways. A vision will come. You know what a plumb line is where they stand and they hold it. It's a weight on a string. So it's directly, perfectly straight vertical. You ever tried to build a wall without anything in a line? You think you're building it straight and it gets off? Well, he's measuring it to say to my standards. By the way, God doesn't grade on the curve. You think, well, I'm bad, but not like that guy. God holds up a line and says, this is what I measure by. And he's also measuring the city to see how big it is. And the angel comes in this vision and says, tell him he can't measure it big enough. 
Jerusalem is mostly desolated now, and he's saying the old walls won't hold it. There'll be so many people and so much livestock. Walls do two things. They keep bad people out, and they keep the good people in. And in the book of Revelation, the new Jerusalem, using Zechariah as a prophecy, remember it comes down, has very short walls. You don't need walls because God himself will be your protector. Who do you think is protecting you in this crazy world with the violence and the evil and the economy in the tank and families falling apart? Who do you think you're going to protect them from? You're going to make a little bubble? God says, no, let me into the very midst and I will be your protection. And people are going to come in that you don't expect to be there from all the nations. Not just the pretty ones, not just the ones that you expect, the righteous ones, but people from the whole earth will come into this new Jerusalem that's coming. And so God says that I love sharing creation with you. You're a little creator because you're made in his very image. And he says, I want you to get to this task. And the task looks overwhelming. We're going to make Los Angeles the greatest city for Christ? Right. And God says... Yeah, cool, huh? And I'm going to do it through you. And I'm going to do it in my way, not your way. And I'm not going to do it by your strength. Look over here in the fourth chapter, in verse 6. He said to me, this is the word of the Lord, the Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. That's how you do it. It's not by economics. It's not by military strength. Solomon, the first temple, built a glorious thing. This thing is in ruins. They've taken everything precious. And there's nobody to help out. In fact, they're building their own homes. And God says, whoa, 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 whoa. First things first. And they said, we're doing first things first. And he says, that's the problem. I need to be first in your life. You take care of me and I will take care of you. And so he loves to share and he loves to do it in these small things. Look at over here in verse 8. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house, and his hands will complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things will rejoice and shall see the plummet in the hand of Zerubbabel. Do not despise the day of little things. You know, when you put down that drink for the last time, if you're an alcoholic, the last time you put down the crack pipe, or you turn off that pornography for that time, it is so tough to do. It's like dying to self the first time. Or that first time you're nice to that so-and-so that is just so mean to you, and you know you're going to be nice to them, and they're going to return the compliment with fire and venom. And that first time you choose to get up in the morning and say, God, I turned off the TV early so I could have time in your word with a cup of coffee and listen. It is so hard to do the first time. Just a little beginning. And you stumble and you fall, but God says, I will do this through you. You start an idea, a dream, a vision, a business, a ministry, what God gives. He delights in doing it in little ways at first. Why? Because we get so far over our head, we've got to look to Him. It's exactly as God loves it. And so he's telling him that I will come to you. You know who we want today in the church for leadership? We want celebrities. We don't want heroes. We say we want heroes. No, we don't. We want celebrities. 
And the thing about a celebrity is a celebrity, that woman or man is made famous by the spin of the roulette ball of society, of whatever thing happens, and they make the celebrity. The hero, whoever she or he is, does it not on their action so much as their heart. A hero is somebody who will step out and do the right thing when no one sees it. The crowd makes a celebrity. The heroes to God are almost always anonymous. You never would have known about or heard about them, except the Lord gives it for an illustration for you. That's why Jesus says, when you help somebody, you do it in such a way that your right hand does not know what your left is doing. When you pray, you don't stand up with all your pretty words. You go to your room and get on your knees and you pray to me. And your Father who sees what you do in secret will reward you. Everybody who does everything so the crowd will applaud for them. And the Christian crowd as well. Jesus says, enjoy it. That's all you get. That's it. But you do things when no one can see. You help somebody when no one in the world encourages you. And I will see. And God says, I will reward you. And so he tells Zerubbabel in this very discouraging time. The toughest thing, how do you change the city? One relationship at a time, one office at a time, one schoolroom, one studio meeting, one caring. You be a class act when the rest of them are being idiots. You be so loving that when they go, what's with you? What's with you? Are you on meds? What is it? And you can say, no, I got a peace because I have a God who takes care of me. And the Lord honors that and takes over it. The toughest thing in life is not physical or mental, Sidney Harris says, He said the three hardest tasks are moral and of the heart. To return love for hate, to include the excluded, and to simply say, I was wrong. Those are the three hardest things. Before you come to this table, before I come to this table, this table says, you say, I was wrong. I blew it. I didn't make an innocent mistake. I flat out gave God the Italian salute and said, I want to do what I want to do when I want to do it. And God says, that is wrong. And someone has to pay. And we say, I'm not going to. And the Lord stunningly says, you don't need to. I already have. That's why Christ went to this cross, took the hit that we deserve, picked up the bill for us, and blew out of that tomb because God wanted us so much. And God delights and doing things through us, things that we can't even imagine. He delights in starting small. And when we've done wrong, we got to come back. I had this husky. I used to, and I am so bad at training dogs. And this husky, he was great except for one thing. Anytime on his leash we got around a pole, he never got the idea he had to go backwards to go forwards. And so I always had to follow him around. I gave him to my mother as a gift. But anyway... Sometimes when you go around the pole and you get stuck the wrong, it doesn't make sense to go back to go forward. And in our lives, when we want to go ahead so bad, because we don't want bad things, we just want the good things in life, and it's so hard to go back to go forward. And that's what repentance is about. God loves sending the cornerstone. Stress is your relationship to an event. Never forget that. It's not the event, it's your relationship to the event. And in all the toxic nervousness and anxiety in this world, when you have a buffer in between, a living buffer by the name of Christ, 
and the very breath of God. Not by might or by power, but by Ruach Elohim, the breath of God. Ruach Elohim, the breath of God in Hebrew that created the world. The Ruach Elohim, the breath of God that parted the Red Sea so the children could walk out. The Ruach Elohim who said to Ezekiel just years before this, and he showed him the vision of the dead dry bones. Can these live? And the breath of God to put flesh, and they stood and they lived again. And God comes to us in our busted up families and relationships and brokenness, and he says, by my breath, what I can do with you. The cornerstone, you put Christ in the center. I don't care how crazy this world gets. You can have a peace. It's not always fun. You can have a joy. You're not always happy. You can, God will take you through this and use you, and even better than if it hadn't been so tough. 400 years ago, outside of a, the great famous marble quarries outside of Florence, marble, as you know, is a very soft rock, and it can crack quite easy if you don't carve it right. Getting it out of the quarry is as much an art as what you do with it when it's there. And one particular very large slab that they had taken out, it was very large, 12 feet. And they thought that this could be good maybe for a pillar to be used or to carve. And one particular artisan came and he looked at it and he went over and he chiseled away on it. He was going to make a design and he put a crack right through it. So he ruined the whole thing. Very, very expensive piece of marble. And so they put it on the side. It was cracked right down the middle. Whatever you're going to use to it, it was just no good. And one young artisan sat there and looked at it. This artisan who had this new way of saying, rather than what is my idea and go looking for the right piece of rock, of looking at the rock and saying, what's within it? This thing had sat there for decades. They called it the beast, this huge slab of unworkable marble. And this young new artisan sat there and stood up one day and said, I see what it has. And Michelangelo took this thrown away worthless piece of marble and carved the statue of David. He said, it's not what I brought to it, it's I just set it free. And when God looks at you, and that person you stare into the mirror, and you see the stains, and the breaks, and the fractures, and the ugliness in your life like in mine. God says, wait till you see what I can set free in there. And all those people next to you, those ones that have all these horrible idiosyncrasies and habits and selfishness, and you go, Lord, they're just so ugly. God says, not with my eyes. That's what this table is. God asking you to do something, and He is, because if you're alive, He's using you to be a part of this community or whatever your home church is and to make a difference in this city. Do you think right now that it's so torn down and God says, what do you think? And you go, Lord, it's a mess. He goes, yeah, isn't that great? And He says, I'm going to use you. And we say, who am I? He said, my daughter, my son. And that's what this table is. This is a negotiating table. And you think you're stubborn. Wait till you meet God. And here's the terms. You can't change them. You can't play with them. He says, you give me your life. You give me all your money. 
You give me all your dreams. You give me your body. You give me your soul. And I'll give you mine. That's the deal. The Apostle Paul said on the night that Christ was betrayed, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body which is broken for you. When you eat this, Zakar, remember me. And after dinner, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which I am pouring out for the remission of your sins. Whenever you drink this, remember me. For as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until the day that he returns for us all. So I ask Roger to come up and to pray for these elements and to set them aside. In a moment, our servers and elders are going to take these to different stations. If this is your home church, you know how this works. If you're visiting, we do this by intinction where you just rip it and dip it into the cup. Renew your covenant with Christ. Let's pray and set these aside. Father, as we come to this table this morning, we're reminded of the thing that uh, Mark reminded us, that your word says that um, there's none of us who are righteous, that all of us have gone astray. And Lord, before you this morning, we confess, I was wrong. I blew it. And Lord, we're in need of your mercy. And yet, Lord, we're reminded that your word says that uh, you didn't wait for us to get it right, but while we were yet sinners, you sent your son Jesus to die for us. And Jesus, you live that life that we are to pattern our lives after. And you said, come and follow me, serve me, be my disciple. And you set your spirit to be that deposit, that guarantee, the, the ruach of God, the breath of God, to breathe new life into us, to be our counselor, our comforter, our advocate. Come, Holy Spirit, come and set aside these common elements. May they be for us this morning true spiritual nourishment. And may we leave here as transformed people because we do this in remembrance of what Jesus did for us. It's in his name we ask and thank him. Amen. Amen.